Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. You look at our show, you can see me supporting Tim Conway, or supporting Harvey, or Harvey supporting Vicky, or Vicky supporting me. I mean, it was a true rep company, which is what I wanted, so that everybody could shine, everybody could score a touchdown. Every Saturday night for 11 years, Carol Burnett communicated a sense of family to the entire country. She did it alongside other skilled comic actors, but it wasn't just skill. There was always a sense of community among the actors, and we in the audience felt we were invited in as part of the gang. It was fall-down funny belly laugh humor that new generations are still discovering. And they're still reacting to the warmth, still feeling that sense of family. I wondered how she did it. So we set up in a studio near her home in California, and we had a talk. Carol, I am so happy to have you on the other end of the microphone here. This is so great. Well, I'm happy to be with you and to see you. It's been too long. I know it. I know. Talk about how long it's been. Once when we were working together, I don't know whether it was in Six Rooms Review or when we were making Four Seasons Uh or on your show. we figured out that we grew up together and didn't know it. That's right. Uh, I lived in one room in an apartment building with my grandmother, one block north of Hollywood Boulevard. Right, and I lived one block north of Hollywood. This, this is a song like this. That goes like, <laughs> I, I lived a block north yeah. of Hollywood Boulevard, and it was Yucca Street. Yucca and Wilcox. And we used to, as a kid, I was around 10 or 11, and as a kid we would roller skate up and down you know, going towards Hollywood Boulevard and back and around the block and everything. And then you and I got to talking about that years ago when we first started to work together. And um, you said that you remember hearing us or seeing us out of a window roller skating because your dad, uh, Robert Alda, was making a movie at Warner Brothers called The Gershwin Story. It was called uh, Rhapsody in Blue, but he was playing Gershwin. Who, yeah, yeah. Was, uh, that's what I meant. And, and we were still living in in this little bungalow uh-huh. with no light coming through the windows because all the banana trees were blocking the window. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, little, at least you had t- enough little, potassium. A little cottage, you know. <laughs> and and I, I, I always wanted, because I remember a girl in the yard when I was about seven or eight, and I always wondered if that was you. I don't know. 
It could have been. I don't remember her roller skates, so it probably wasn't you. Oh, well, we roller skated. Then we would run and play hopscotch and stuff on the yeah. street, you know. That was way, way back in the covered wagon days. You know? <laughs> but you were ill at the time and yeah. couldn't come out to play. That's right. I had polio, and I was in bed for months. And I remember looking out the window, stand on my bed and look out the window at kids playing outside. That was us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we could have been childhood buddies. Yeah. Well, we got to be buddies later. I, I had Better some of late the, than never. Some of the best times I've had acting have been with you. You're, oh. you're such a, a positive presence, and it shows in your work, and it, it shows in the preparation to work. Oh. And I, I, my impression is, you know, we talk about communicating, relating all the time on the show. And one of the aspects of that is how you, how a person manages a group. And you had a group that for how many, 11, 12 years, your, your show was on the air? 11. And there was a sense of community mm -hmm. that the actors had among themselves and that you had with the audience. And that, I think, comes from your ability to relate to the people around you. I remember you told me once, did I get this right, that you wanted to work with people on the show who would be good to work with? Oh, absolutely. I mean, not, not, I mean, they were all talented, but yeah. I think one of the aspects that came yeah. first was would they be good collaborators? And well, I learned that actually from Gary Moore when I was a second banana on the Gary Moore show. So, Gary, tell everybody who Gary Moore was because some people Moore might not remember him. Gary Moore was a television host, comedian. He started out in radio as the sidekick of Jimmy Durante. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, so, and then Gary uh, was a host of I've Got a Secret. He had a morning show for many years on CBS. And on um, it was a half-hour morning show live with Derward Kirby as his sidekick. And, and he, he started out as an announcer. He did. Derward did. Uh, yeah. Gary kind of announced, too. But then he became an MC, And then he got his own television variety show. And uh, I had auditioned for him for the morning show, because on Fridays, it, instead of being a half hour, it would be an hour and a half, and he would introduce new talent. Uh, he introduced Jonathan Winters and oh, wow. Steve Lawrence, and, and I auditioned for him, and he put me on the air. And then he got this variety show, an hour variety show, on Tuesday nights uh, at CBS, and... Uh, so this one night, uh, one week, Martha Ray was going to be his guest. Yeah. And she got sick. She got bronchitis and couldn't do the show, and it was a live show. They called me on Sunday. They said, can you come and rehearse and learn Martha's oh, part? Uh, and how, how much time did you have to get ready? Uh, Sunday, uh, Sunday afternoon and Monday, and then the show was on Tuesday night. And it... Well, Gary explained to the audience, which was very sweet, on the air at the end when he brought me out for a bow that I had just, you know, come in two days before. And as a result, Bob Banner, who was producing Gary's show, asked if I would become a regular performer on Gary's show. And that's when you learned from Gary about that's this right. thing of collecting people who would be good collaborators. Yeah. But also another important thing I learned was that 
even though his name was the Gary Moore show, yeah, we would be sitting around reading the script on the Monday for the following uh, taping sh- the show. Then we started taping on Fridays, and he would read us. Maybe there would be a joke or a punchline or something, and he'd say, "You know what? Give this line to Derwood or give it to Car- Carol. They can say it funnier than I can." Oh wow! He was so generous. Yeah, you know, and I, I, he said, "Well, it only makes my show better." That's the thing. It, yeah. It always amazes me. Sometimes I've worked with actors who didn't want to be on the other side off camera while you, the camera's on you. Yeah. Because they had more important things to do, they felt. But it makes the picture better if you're there connecting. Well, I there. you look at our show, you, know, you can see me supporting Tim Conway. Right. Or supporting Harvey, or Harvey supporting Vicky, or Vicky supporting me. I mean, it was a true rep company, which is what I wanted, so that everybody could shine. Everybody could score a touchdown. And you had amazing talents working with you. Oh, my gosh. And guest stars, you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I came across on YouTube, the two of us singing a song. Yeah. I was dressed up as a Santa Claus or something. That was Nobody Does It Better. Yeah. Nobody Does It Better. I, I, I couldn't sing it now without a lot of preparation. <laughs> in fact, when I saw it, I, I thought, oh, my God, I'm singing in tune. You Put sang up a storm. If you're the right one, I'll know it. <laughs> oh, what if I blow it? Nobody does it like me. If you're the right one, I'll guess it. If we click, bet I mess it up. Nobody does it like me. But all at once I'm feeling lucky. All my butterflies are gone. Look at me, the ugly duckling. Suddenly a lovely swan. If there's a wrong way to tie a knot, a right way to care a lot. Your the DVDs of your shows and your show itself on MeTV yeah. is really as popular as ever. It's it's amazing. Uh, I think it's because we were never one of the reasons is we were never topical. Oh right, right. We just went for the laughs. Yeah, you know. I mean, once in a while we do a takeoff on something in the Oval Office, or but it wasn't very often. So we were mostly doing sketches that people could relate to today. You know, I dare anybody to look at the dentist sketch with Tim and Harvey and not lose it, and that's over 45 years old. Isn't that amazing? They, they, uh, they're always talking about how comedy is changing, and it does change, but there's an example of how it, it's, it's, still, uh-huh. it's still hitting us in yeah. the funny bone. Well, you know, it's, uh, I, I miss seeing shows uh, that would just go for belly laughs. 
So I got a question for you. How, how the, the iconic moment when you come down the stairs <laughs> with the... Gone with the wind? Gone with the wind. How, did you know that was going to stop the show for the next generation? I, I wasn't surprised because originally the writers had written that I would run up the stairs as Scarlett O'Hara and just come down with the draperies hanging on me. Yeah. And Bob Mackey, our brilliant costume designer, who designed every costume we wore, he designed average of 65 costumes a week. Oh, my God. How did he do that? I don't know. In 11 years, that's a little over 17,000 costumes. Oh, my God. He's designed. And he would come up with all these comedy, wonderful looks. So I went into costume fitting that Wednesday. We're going to tape on Friday. And he said, you know, the drapery's hanging. That's not as funny as it could be. He said, come here. I want to show you what I have in mind. And I walked into the dressing room, and there it was on the curtain rod. And (laughs) I said, Bob, this is going to go down in history as one of the funniest sight gags ever in television. And it sure did. And it has. I never see it without laughing. Oh, I know. And And the line, too. He says, that gown is gorgeous. And she says, I saw it in the window, and I just couldn't resist it. It was a great, great punchline to that. How much improvising was there in rehearsal or on camera during the show? Well, Tim totally improvised. <laughs> yeah, he, he would love to surprise people oh, and make, totally. make you laugh. Oh, I yeah, think. yeah. And, you know, people think uh, sometimes we were criticized because, oh, you shouldn't be doing laughing like that. But it wasn't as often as people think. because They just remember it. <laughs> right. You know, but I And it's say, involuntary, right? I mean, you can't stop it once, once you start to break up. Yeah, you can't, and, the more well, you try to stop it, the worse it gets. Tim was merciless, <laughs> totally merciless. Like in the dentist sketch, half of that stuff he did on air, which he didn't do in the dress rehearsal. Oh, wow. That's why Harvey was... <laughs> Tim swears Harvey wet his pants. <laughs> and Harvey prided himself on being very serious about his comedy. Yeah. Yeah, he did not like it when uh, when he broke up. He was not ha- a happy camper, but he broke up at the at, at the Tim. A- also at you with the with the with the uh, pole over your shoulders. And no, he was no. Uh-uh. I, it looked like he was holding it back. No, he was. My he memory. Would, See, that's the thing. We we impute yeah. breaking up when it doesn't even happen yeah. because we knew once I, in a while it did. I almost started to break up coming down the stairs, and I was biting the inside of my cheek. Oh God! To keep from laughing. Because you knew how great the this audience was. went nuts. Did did you ever get? If you mentioned program practices, yes, which I is did the, once. the euphemism for censorship yeah, on the network, once. what what was it they didn't like you did? We were Harvey. It was early on, and uh, and Harvey and I were doing a sketch, and he was interviewing me voiceover, kind of like Edward R. Murrow, you know. Yeah. And I'm a nudist, <laughs> and I'm behind a fence. That, that says, keep out, and my shoulders and arms are bare, and I'm kind of leaning over the fence, and my legs are shown from the, just above the knee down with high-top sneakers. I mean, it's a funny look. Yeah. And it was nothing but jokes about being in a nudist colony. Right. So one of the lines was, Harvey said, well, so what do you nudists do for recreation? And my line was, well, we have dances every Saturday night. Oh, well, how do you nudists dance? Very carefully. So now, so for some unknown reason, program practices thought that was too dirty to go. Oh my God. Nowadays, they'd show it. Tell me. So they said, come up with something else. So we said, 
okay. This was what we wanted to say in the first place, but we didn't think they'd let it go, but they did. Okay, um, we have dances every Saturday night. Oh, how do you nudist dance? Cheek to cheek. <laughs> <laughs> and that was okay. That was okay. <laughs> well, you wonder what goes on in the dirty mind no of the censors. I don't know. <laughs> we had a similar thing on, on MASH. Uh-huh. Uh, Margaret, uh, formerly known as Hot Lips, yeah, yeah. came into the tent and caught out of the corner of her eye a jockstrap on the table and berated Hawkeye uh-huh. for parading that thing around in front of her. They sent us a note. You cannot have a jockstrap on the table, and you cannot even have a white piece of cloth representing it. What? Because there's something so sacred about male genitals, I guess. <laughs> you, can't, you can't refer to it in any, any way. But, but previously on programs, I'd be playing Hawkeye, and in a scene that was totally uncensored, I'd walk into a clothesline full of brassiers and panties. That, yeah, nothing that, sacred about n- those. Nothing sacred about that. <laughs> that was fine. Oh, that's funny. You're known by a generation now that wasn't even born 10 years ago. Several, yeah. 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 And and you told me once that it's it's so hard to believe that you get, when if you get a letter from somebody 10 years ago, tell me me again, I can't uh, get over that. I'll get sometimes these kids like 10 years old, 12 years old, whatever, and more than once... I've gotten uh, letters from a little kid that's going to be in a production of Once Upon a Mattress, which was the show that gave me my big break right. on Broadway. And uh, so, and I played Princess Winifred of Winifred the Woebegone. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and so some, sometimes I get letters from little girls who say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in Once Upon a Mattress and I'm playing Princess Winifred and I know you did. Could you give me some advice on how to do it? And if they leave me a phone number, I'll call them because it's simpler than having to sit down and say, so that this way I can say, what what are you concerned about? Tell me, and then I'll tell you wh- how I felt when I was I, doing it. I think it's, that's amazing. That's, in, that's an example of your utter ability, your total ability to relate to another person at your own expense. Well, I'm, I, I'm amazed I at love, that. I, I would only do it for little kids. Yeah, kids, are, kids, kids get me too. Yeah. The way you connect... To the audience when you have done Q and A, and you do Q and A still, yes. right? When you do a speaking engagement, uh-huh. it's all Q and A. No, I, I intersperse it with clips right. of the show, right. in and out, you know. So and that, and that maybe gives the audience prompts for what, what things they correct. want to ask you. Except yeah. that over the time that you've been uh, such a, a a star performer, they have plenty to ask you about anyway. Oh, lots of stuff about, uh, you know, how did I find Vicki Lawrence? How did I, uh, is Tim that funny in real life? And yeah. uh, things like that. And of course, I have stories about that that uh, I've developed over the years, you know, that I can tell that are, are very fun, a lot of fun. But I never know, I don't want to know what anybody's going to ask. See, I love that. You really have this improvisational yeah. ability. And you you reach for it. You mm-hmm. want you want to not know what's going to happen exactly. next. Well, when we first were going to do my show, Bob Banner, who was executive producer, who was a executive producer of Gary's show, was came over and was doing my show, and he said, "You know, you should do what Gary did because Gary would warm up his audience, but they never taped it. 
Uh. And he'd do Q&A because he said, I don't want a comic coming out to warm him up. Let me go out and do it. Yeah. So Bob said, I think you should do that, but I think we should tape it. And I... I didn't want to do it. I, I, <laughs> the first time you do it must be a really what? scary thing. Are you kidding me? I, you know, <laughs> he said, Carol, it's important. And I said, why? He said, because if you're doing a variety show and you're going to be in fright wigs and fat suits yeah. and, you know, uh, teeth blacked out and all kinds of crazy outfits and doing crazy characters. Show them you first. The audience should get to know you first. Yeah. You know, that was smart. Very smart. And I said, look, um, Okay, I'll do it for four shows, uh, but if I if if I'm not comfortable, let's just eighty six that whole idea. Yeah. And so the first night I went out, I was a wreck, <laughs> I, and I was I, I was scared nobody would ask me a question. Then I was scared if they did, I wouldn't have an answer. Yeah. You know, and uh, but <laughs> do you remember the first question or the first two questions? Uh, do you get nervous when you come out before an audience? <laughs> and you're looking at it. <laughs> I said, Hello. But I, you know what I did? I, I, I said, no, and I fell down. Oh, perfect. <laughs> you know? Perfect. So that, you know, that got a good, good response. And um, then I did it again and again. And then finally, you know, after the show had aired and people had seen it, so when the studio audience came in, they were kind of prepared. Yeah. And... Sometimes we would have people would want to come up and do stuff. Oh, that's funny. There's one lady, I loved her. She was in the audience and she looked kind of like B. Arthur when B. Arthur did Maud. Yes. Yeah, you know, yes. and she kind of had that look about her. And she stood, I called on her, she stood up and she wanted to come up and sing. <laughs> I said, okay, come on up. You know, it was she ran up on stage like Roadrunner. <laughs> yeah. She was totally fearless. Yeah. And I said, so what's your name? She said, Terry McCann. And I said, what do you want to sing? And without missing a beat, she turned to the band in the band shell and she said, you made me love you in the key of G. <laughs> well, the audience screamed and the band started up, you yeah. know. And she shushed the, shushed the audience, and she started, you made me love you, Baba. You know, she was good. And so I knew the song. <laughs> oh, so great. I came, and I joined her. Now, we're belting away, just, you know, wailing away, and the audience yeah. is clapping, and yeah. we're having a good time. And then we come to the end of the song, and I had a different way in my mind of ending it from what she had. And so what happened was we and then we started to peter out and there was a pause and she looked at me in the silence and she said, "Well, you screwed it up." <laughs> <laughs> Did you keep that in the show? Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and uh that we show that in my Q&As. Oh, that's and great. And then last year I got a letter from somebody who knew Terry McCann. She'd passed away at age 100, mm. and they played this at her memorial. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. What a story. Isn't that cute? Like everybody else, actors have to learn how to take criticism. It isn't easy. And one of my favorite stories of Carol's is about a harrowing moment when she got some criticism in the most unvarnished way. Coming up right after this break...
Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is clear and vivid, and now back to my conversation with Carol Burnett. I'm so caught up in talking with you. I never have a conversation like this with anybody else where I forget what I, what I wanted to oh. know because I get so tied up in what you're, what you're telling me. Oh, I, I think sometimes about criticism when, when, you, when you have a bit of something critical to say to somebody, you want, you want them to do something differently or better or something like that. You know, they often say you should start with something positive. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm so sensitive to criticism, I hear the positive part and I think, oh, here comes the bad stuff, you know. <laughs> but I always, when I think about giving criticism, I always think of that story you told me. Were you at the upstairs at the downstairs when you were starting out? No, the Blue Angel. The Blue Angel, and and it it it, it was I think the first night, and you had a song about John uh, Foster Dulles. John Foster Dulles. Uh-huh. Tell me that story again. I love that story. Oh well, I I had this nightclub act. It's twenty minutes long, and uh, the Blue Angel was a very in nightclub in New York, and there were always four acts, four performers, and each act was twenty minutes, and then there'd be a break in between, and then so forth. So. Uh, the writer that I worked with, Ken Welch, he later wrote all my specials and, and wrote on my show, did a special material number. And this was at the height of Elvis Presley's popularity yeah. in 1957. So he said, and the then Secretary of State was John Foster Dulles, aptly named. He was quite dull. <laughs> You know, and had no sense of humor or anything like that. And uh, wore a fedora and always had this down expression. So Kenny said, I'm going to write a song about you, a young girl, not crazy over Elvis, but crazy over John Foster Dulles. And I said, that is really funny. You know, that, that. so he wrote it, and it's a very funny song, and I did it at the Blue Angel. I opened with it, and the audience loved it. And I went on the Jack Parr show. I sang it on the Par show, and then I had to go back to do the midnight show at uh, at um, the Blue Angel, and the phones were ringing off the hook, and one of the calls was from uh, 
John Waters or David Waters, I can't remember, who was Mr. Dulles's television advisor. <laughs> and he said, I saw this, and Mr. Dulles didn't. Could you go back on the Jack Parr show and do it maybe Thursday night so he can see it? <sighs> so, I, yeah, so I went back, did it on Thursday night, the Parr people. Then I did it on Ed Sullivan, the Sunday night, so three in a row. And... um I have two stories, so I'm I'm on one, and then I'll get to yours. Uh, so the following Sunday, I'm watching Meet the Press, and Dulles is on. Yeah, and it's all very serious until the, they're going to sign off. And the one last question is, Mr. Dulles, what is this uh, thing going on between you and that young girl who sings <laughs> that love song about you? <laughs> and I'm sitting there watching yeah. this. I oh my lord! And he got a twinkle in his eye, and he said. I make it a policy never to discuss matters of the heart in public. Oh, great. Was that great? Great. So now I feel I get cocky. I get cocky I because I've got, you know, I've been on television three times in one week, and I'm doing the Blue Angel, and everybody's coming to see me. And I got too full of myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I thought, oh, I, boy, I'm, I've, I've got it nailed. I've got it nailed. So this one night... And I opened with the Dulles number. I come out to do my act, and I do the Dulles number. And the audience is like a, an oil painting. They're just staring at me. No laughs. And then I had the rest of my 20 minutes to go, and the flop sweat was just horrible. Mm. And I think, oh, my God. And I barely got this when I finished my oh, act. Just okay. got, and So now I had another show to do. Because that was an early show, and then there's there was another one at midnight. So I go up the stairs, and I'm headed down the hall towards my dressing room, and I'm crying. And I thought, oh my god, what did I do wrong? What did I, you know? I was just too sure of myself. Anyway, so there's this man coming towards me to go to the men's room that was right, and he's kind of had a little too much. He's he tippled a bit, and he was he was drunk, and so. <laughs> He cut, and you know, and I had to pass him in the hall. And as he was going into the men's room, he looked at me. He said, "Hey, weren't you that little lady who was just on on the stage down there just now?" And I said, "Yes." And I think, what's he? And he said, "Boy, you stink." <laughs> <laughs> I love that's that's the example of giving criticism. I always think you of stink. <laughs> you stink. Well. It was the best thing that ever happened because from then on, I never was cocksure about myself. Mm. And so I didn't come out with that, oh, hey, yeah. aren't you lucky to see me? You know, that's the worst impression to give an audience. Of course. Uh, you're, you're so lucky to be here looking at yeah, me. It exactly. makes it, when I see a performer do that, I just cringe. Well, you turn off. You know? Yeah. 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 There's any kind of slickness, you know, yeah. Elia Kazan used to say he liked to work with actors before they got slick and looked like actors. Oh. And I, we don't all have to do that, but it takes work not to get slick. Yeah. Because it's, it, there is something about it, as glorious as it is, not to know what the next moment is going to be. That's right. You, you can take refuge in doing it over and over and know you have a way to accomplish it and yeah. avoid the fear of the unknown. Exactly. But the, I think the best way to avoid the fear of the unknown is not to be afraid of it. <laughs> to, <laughs> there you go. To welcome it, you know. Yeah. It, there's something wonderful about it. 
What do you remember a moment when you were? I, you may not, so don't worry if mm-hmm. you don't. But do you remember a moment where you didn't know what you were going to say next and were shocked at what came out and at how good it was? Well, I told you when I was about the one question, odd question that I got uh, when I was doing my Q and A show. Uh, this was about ten years ago. That's what I told you the story, but I'll, I'll tell it again. That uh, you have to remember, it was ten years ago. And I was, and I never have a plant in the audience, so it's all random. And I called on this lady, and she said, "Carol, if you could be a member of the opposite sex for twenty-four hours, and then pop back into being yourself again, who would you be, and what would you do?" And the audience went, "Woo!" You know. And uh, I thought, and I said a little prayer. I said, "Okay, God, <laughs> I'm going to open my mouth, and whatever comes out is going to be your fault." <laughs> And I swear, Alan, I didn't know I was going to say this until it came out. I said, remember, it's 10 years ago, I'd be Osama bin Laden and I'd kill myself. <laughs> the audience screamed with laughter and applause. Yeah. And I just said, thank you, God. <laughs> but I didn't know I was going to say that until I opened my mouth. You had this sense of community with the actors that is... I think we all want to believe that when we're having fun watching a show that that's so much fun, we want to believe they're a family. Yeah, we were. Yeah, and and if you really are, that makes a big difference. I think it shows in in the well, interplay between. Well, it showed in Mash. It showed in Mash, and you and know, Mary what? Tyler Moore. Yeah, and when we when you and I made Four Seasons, yeah, absolutely, we had uh, that was a movie, and in a movie you don't get a chance to rehearse, right? Almost, almost never. But we rehearsed. I, I don't know if you remember my saying this as a, as the director. I, I said we have uh, we have three weeks to rehearse, and we'll we'll go over the lines and we'll rehearse the scenes. But the most important thing we can do during these three weeks is become close friends, right? Because it was a movie about friendship. six close friends and yeah. friendship and the ups and downs of it. And as soon as I said that, everybody was such a good camper. <laughs> everybody started telling embarrassing stories about themselves <laughs> so, that, so that we opened up to one another. Do you remember that? <laughs> oh, my God. And remember Jack Weston, who, who was such a good actor. Oh, yeah. And he every time we we got to a different season in the movie where there was a different physical activity to do like he had to ski yeah he'd say uh, i don't ski i'm i can't i'll i'll just pretend to be skiing i'm not skiing but don't wait till we get to the motorcycles in the next season <laughs> i love motorcycles get to the motorcycle season he'd say <laughs> I don't really ride a motorcycle. I'm no good at that. But <laughs> boating is my thing. When we get to the summer sequence, and boy, he, right. he, ne- he never did anything. I know. <laughs> oh, that, that was a f- that was a funny scene. I remember the one where we were all, where you and I started laughing when we were hearing uh, uh, the characters of Bess Armstrong and Lynn making love in the in the next compartment. In the next compartment, and and you and I got we we improvised that. That's right. The whole scene was improvised, yeah. and it, it the laughter was so genuine, mm-hmm. and the sounds from the other room were mm-hmm. so genuine, and they were over in the corner improvising lovemaking. <laughs> <laughs> which was already a peculiar thing to know, yeah, right. just out of the corner of your eye. You see them at a microphone. Yeah, yeah. It, it just occurred to me, I know this is from left field, but it occurred to me 
how many characters you created on your show and what a sense of character you had, even though there were often exaggerated characters. Mm -hmm. When when I asked you if you wanted to do Four Seasons with me, Mm -hmm. you were so kind about and thoughtful about the way you said, yes, I'd like to do it, but how about if we talk about making the character a little deeper? Mm-hmm. I forget the exact words you used, but that was the the intention. And you had such good ideas about what made that woman different from all the other characters in the piece. Oh, thank and, you. And, and, and it was very helpful. I remember helpful. I wanted us as the characters to have a fight. Yeah, yeah. And we and that, that and she was too perfect, and that was the thing. I thought she was a little too perfect. So, yeah. so to have have some flaws, so that you and I could butt right heads. because my character had plenty of flaws. You're the one who organizes these trips. And I hate it. Doesn't it ever occur to you that sometimes I'd like to be the one with the sore knee? No. You handle everything like three of the uh, most efficient people I know. I, and nobody can do what you do. My God, you're perfect. How dare you call me that? How dare I call you perfect? Yes. Is that what you said? Yes. How, isn't that what perfect? I heard? What's wrong with perfect? How, how can you get upset about that? Because when I'm perfect, I cease to exist. You, you don't have to hug me when, when I'm low. You don't have to cheer me up with a bunch of $2 daffodils. Nothing. I don't surprise you with daffodils. Oh, you know yeah. I do. You know yes. I do. When you feel like it. But it makes you feel good, but not when I need them. The reality is you're married to a middle-aged woman with a good sense of humor and dry skin. And if you don't like it, then go find yourself a nymph. Just do me the courtesy of telling me. In other words, and I mean this in the most loving way, shit or get off the pot. I, I, I was working very hard on the script, writing it. And uh, one day, uh, you know how when you're in the shower, your mind ranges over all your work. Oh, yeah. And I, I came out of the shower and I said to Arlene, you know, I finally realized who this character is I'm writing. I understand now with all his flaws, he's my father. And Arlene said to me, You're kidding, right? I said, no, what do you mean? She said, it's you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no wonder you've been married so long (laughs) and so successfully. (laughs) It really interests me a lot, your ability to open yourself up. It's very generous. I um, I'm 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 thinking, for instance, of the book you wrote about your daughter Carrie, mm-hmm. and now the book is being made into a movie, right? Yeah. Tell tell about that. Well, I uh, years ago, when before she got sick, she uh, with cancer, she took a road trip. She was writing a screenplay uh, about a girl, a kind of bohemian young girl, who. Uh, from Hollywood, gets in a car with a mysterious cowboy and goes, she wants to go to Graceland. But it's her adventures along the way, and you you don't know who this mysterious cowboy is until the end. And so she would write me, she would email me scenes as she was taking this road trip. And I would comment on them and everything. So she had the beginning and the ending, and the middle need needed work. So when she was sick, she asked me, she said, Mom, could you finish my screenplay for me? Mm. I said, honey, I don't know. They're, they're your characters to write. You know, I don't know. Where. She said, that's okay. That's okay. 
So that had been living with me for about 10 years after she died. And I thought, I can't do that. But what I can do is write about her and my relationship going through, because she had tumultuous teenage years when she was into drugs. Mm. And then she got sober uh, when she was 17. And then she went on to become a writer, a singer, a songwriter, an actress. And uh, she did uh, so much stuff. And in fact, she did this cult movie called Tokyo Pop that got, she got great reviews. Marla Brando called her. Oh, really? He said, I'd like to talk to you about a project. And and she said, no, no, thank you. What? <laughs> I, I, that's what I said. Yeah. I said, what, what are was you crazy? Reason? She said, Mom, I already did. The, I want to concentrate on my music. Mm. So she wanted to do, she wasn't, didn't care about being famous or a star or anything, you know. And so I thought, well, I want to write about how we coped with the drugs, how finally I had to love her enough to let her hate me. Because mm. she did when I slapped her into uh, rehab places and stuff yeah. like that. You know, oh, my God, she called me every name in the book. Yeah. But then she got well, and uh, she started, as I say, performing and rehearsing and so forth. And then she got sick, and she had an amazing attitude about it. Uh, and she, at first, is the, the fear, the anger, the why me? But then she kind of settled into some sort of a Zen moment, and uh, she, oh, but I, she still had a sense of humor. She was in and out of the hospital a few times. The last time she was in the hospital, the nurse came up to me. I was headed for Carrie's room, and she said, "I have to t tell you something about Carrie." I said, "What?" She said, "She cheers us up when we mm -hmm. go in to." The room, you know, she bald-headed and all of that from chemo and everything. And uh, I said, Carrie, uh, the nurse said, uh, I said to her, I said, Carrie, how come you're always so cheerful? You know, and Carrie said, every day I wake up and decide, and that's a key word, decide. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Mm. That was it. So I thought about all of this, and then I thought, you know what? I'm going to write a book about us carrying me, uh, the first part of it, and then the last part will be her half-finished screenplay. Mm. So uh, I did, and it sold very well. And um, so just uh, about a year ago, uh, Stephen Rogers, who produced and wrote I, Tanya, I gave the book to him thinking maybe, you know, uh, he could help with the Carrie screenplay. And he said, I'm going to give this to these two brothers who are good writers and see what they think. They came back and said, what we want to write is Carrie and Carol. Oh, I see. Yeah. That's what we're passionate about. Yeah. They fell in love with Carrie. And so uh, we pitched it to uh, a few studios and stuff and Focus Films, which was the one we wanted, mm -hmm. um, picked it up, and they're uh, going to do a movie of it. And uh, Stephen Rogers will be a co-producer along with Tina Fey. We 
do a thing on the show where we end every conversation with seven quick questions. Uh-oh. That, yeah, I know, but they're very mild. Don't okay. worry, they're not embarrassing. <laughs> and and we invite seven quick answers. Quick answers, and they're they're sort of about uh, roughly to do with relating and communicating. You'll see what I mean. Mm. And they're they're not intrusive. Okay. What do you wish you really understood? Life. Okay. That was quick. <laughs> what do you wish other people understood about you? That I... Hmm, that's a tough one. Yeah, I, I always found it tough, too. Yeah. I That uh, it's okay to come up and say hello. <laughs> oh, that's that's nice because you. you, you I, I welcome you, it. You're you're who you you're who you are. Yeah. You're not the uh, the icon. <laughs> yeah. Now you sort of answered this, but maybe you have another answer. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? That was it. The one about uh, what would uh, if you were a member of the opposite sex, uh, who would you be and what would you do in twenty four hours? Okay. Now, how do you stop a compulsive talker? I think I yawn. <laughs> you do? You literally <laughs> yawn? <laughs> do you really mean that? <laughs> well, well, you said, how do you? How would you do it? That's what I guess I would do. Yeah. <gasps> you could really give one, too. <laughs> is, if, if, if empathy is figuring out what the other person's point of view is, what they're what they're going through. Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? You want me to say it? You don't have to name anybody. Oh well, then. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and now this is because that person has no empathy. I got you. Ah, so a lack of empathy would inspire. Yeah. The same thing in you. Yeah. yeah. How do you like to deliver bad news, in person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> uh, well, it depends. I, I guess in person, if if that would be allowable, if it's bad news and the person is 3,000 miles away, it would be either carrier pigeon or the <laughs> telephone. Yeah. Nobody uses a telephone anymore. I hate the telephone. I've always been nervous on the phone, so oh. I was very glad when email came in. On texting. Do you texting. text? I, yeah, I, te- I do the whole thing. Yeah. But, you know, if it had been texting first and there had been no telephones and then the telephone would be invented, everybody would say, oh, my gosh. You can hear a voice. You can hear a voice. You can hear how they sound. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. They came in the wrong order. Exactly. So what, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Oh, Cruelty. Toward you or anybody else? Anybody else. Yeah. And me. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I hope nothing ever happens that ends our friendship <laughs> no, or I, threatens it in any way. No way. You're terrific. I Thank love you, you so much. I love you too, Carol. Thank you. And Arlene sends her love. Back at you. That's great. Thanks. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. 
When Carol accepted her Golden Globe Lifetime Achievement Award earlier this year, she said, We've been granted a gift, a canvas to paint with our talents, one to make people laugh or cry or maybe do both. And she certainly made us all do both. And The Carol Burnett Show is back on TV. In addition to being available on DVD and through Amazon Prime, you can now watch lost episodes of her groundbreaking show on MeTV. The show airs on Sunday nights. Check your local listings. The rarely seen episodes showcase sketches from the first five seasons of her long-running series, including the premiere episode with Jim Neighbors. Carol's written several best-selling books, including In Such Good Company, the New York Times bestseller about her 11 years on the show, and also the book mentioned in this episode, Carrie and Me, A Mother-Daughter Love Story. And for more details about Carol and The Carol Burnett Show, check out the official show page on Facebook at facebook.com, The Carol Burnett Show. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the team behind the most extraordinary podcast I've heard this year, Ear Hustle. The show is recorded and produced from inside San Quentin Prison. It's a revealing and moving portrait of life inside prison, and it's told by the inmates themselves. People, you know, that's been in prison five years, 10 years, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, people don't know the, what, what has happened to you. Um, not that some people care, they might not care, but when they hear a person and they look like, man, he's just a regular dude, he's just like me, he just made a bad decision in his life, you know, and I go back to him like, look here, man, you want to continue being a statistic in prison? Or do you want to get your story out? Join me as I talk with Irlan Woods and his producing partner, Nigel Poor, next time on Clear and Vivid. I'm Nigel Poor from the podcast Ear Hustle. And Erlon, I'm so excited. Can you say what we're about to do? I am Erlon Woods, and we're about to be on Clear and Vivid. With Alan Alda! Can you believe that? <laughs> I can definitely believe it. Did you ever watch Mash in Prison? So I'm a, I'm a late comer to Mash. Oh my God, you know? I grew up watching and, it. And the reason I... Um, watched MASH a lot was at nighttime it's the only thing that's on and it was hella (laughs) funny it was hilarious listening to your favorite podcast that's smart earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University that's really smart with 24-7 access to coursework no set class times and dedicated student support you can go to school when and where it works for you low online tuition means you can even do it for less and dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.